This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is www.gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. If you have a Bible with you, you can turn to James chapter 2. James is in the New Testament towards the end, sort of towards the end of your Bible, if you're unfamiliar with the scripture, James chapter 2. And what we're doing is we are just kind of teaching through this book. So each week we read a little bit from James and then we talk about it and uh, try to understand what's it mean and how do we apply it to our life. So it's a pretty simple agenda, pretty simple plan. And uh, this will take us through probably early 2010, which really sounds like the distant future. Twenty, I mean, it is the future, but it sounds 2010 sounds like, I know everybody's riding around with the space cars above the ground and stuff like that in the old cartoons. But 2010 is upon us, so we will finish it in 2010. And what we're going to do is we're going to make a shift. We're going to teach a little bit more in James. Then we're going to make a we're going to take a break from James in uh, the end of November and the beginning of December. Because what we're going to be doing is talking some about our mission as a church locally in terms of reaching our community uh, with the gospel. And we're going to talk particularly about what God has provided for us by bringing us a donation of land in Frisco Square across the street. So we're going to talk about our mission and what that open door represents Um, And then we're also going to talk about how we can respond to that open door. And on December 13th, Sunday, December 13th, we're going to have an opportunity for everyone in the church to participate by uh, giving towards uh, building over in Frisco Square. And then we'll also on that same Sunday give you an opportunity to make some type of a, a pledge of what you're planning to give in 2010 as well. Um, Probably won't be building for a couple years, but we need to now be obviously preparing, and uh, we are in the midst of preparing now, but preparing again for that. So that's a little bit what's coming up, and then we'll do Christmas, and then we'll be back to uh, back to James at uh, the beginning of January. So that's just to give you a little bit of what's coming up, and then also to put that date in your mind, uh, December the 13th. Okay, James chapter 2, today we're reading verses 8 through 13. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word today, and we thank you for what it communicates to us, and we just want to humble ourselves this morning and just acknowledge from the outset that we do not have life figured out, but you do, and you are all-knowing, and you are holy, you are always right, 
You are always good. You always care for us. And so we ask you today that we could understand this text. We pray that the lights would go on in our hearts and that you would instruct us with truth today. And that not only would we be hearers, but we would also be doers of your word as we walk out of this place today. And Lord, for that, we need your help. So Lord, please be merciful afresh to us today and help us to understand and incline our wills to obeying you. And most of all, Lord, would you reveal to us in a fresh way the glory of Jesus Christ and him crucified. We pray that the gospel would be sweeter to us as we walk out of here than it is right now, and that the power of Christ would be more real to us to be hearers and doers of your word. Lord, I pray that you'd give me strength and clarity to communicate your word faithfully to the wonderful folks gathered here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, James has been writing in this letter at this point on this theme of being a hearer and a doer of God's Word, a hearer and a doer of God's Word. And he, he's been talking about the fact that if someone is genuinely a Christian, that their life will evidence the work of God within them. That in essence is saying that it is, that it is absurd to say someone is a Christian if they've experienced no life change because of the gospel. That the gospel of Jesus Christ makes a difference in us. And so he's saying that the Christian is one who is, becomes a Christian by the scripture, the word of God. And then once they are a Christian, that they hear the word of God and by God's grace seek to act upon it, though imperfectly, but seek to act upon the word of God. And by being a hearer and a doer of the word of God, they grow and mature. And that this hearing and doing is a is an evidence that their religion is true, that their religion is pure, that they, that they really have been converted. And so he gives some examples up at chapter 1. Right before this, James says, look, if someone's really religious and yet they don't control their speech, then their religion's worthless. So he says if they gather on Sunday and they worship in a religious environment like we're doing right now. I mean, it doesn't appear real religious. There's no stained glass window or cross up in front of us or something like that. But this is a religious worship service. It is a, a formal gathering of a church to worship God. So he says, if you're, your religion, if you practice religion, but your speech never changes, then really your religion's a sham because anybody can show up at a meeting. But it's when God works in one's heart, when one's genuinely been converted, it will affect one's speech the other days of the week. He says also if you're genuinely converted, if your religion is pure, if it's sincere, if it's not just external and formal, but it's also internal and true, then you'll have a concern for needy people. You'll have a concern for those who are in need. And he talks about caring for widows and orphans. And he also says that you will keep yourself unstained from the world, that genuine religion is a, an avoidance of the mindset of the world, which is opposed to God. And then in chapter 2, where we are now, he has just given seven verses where he has talked about uh, what true religion looks like in the church. What does it really look like to know Christ, to have believed the gospel, and to have been changed by the gospel? He says it will affect the way you relate together, and it will affect the way you relate to new people. And he gives an illustration. He says, what if you're at church and somebody comes in and they're wealthy, they're presentable, they're impressive, 
Their, their attire and their style and their speech, they're polished and they're impressive. He says, if you treat them by giving them a favorable seat, a comfortable area, if you pay attention to them in an unusual way, he says, while at the same time, if a poor person comes in in rags, soiled, dirty, smelly, perhaps kind of like a, a, a homeless person, if that person walks in and you just sort of treat them lesser, like say, hey, stand in the back or sit at my feet, he said, then you are showing partiality, is the word that he uses in verse 1 of chapter 2. You're showing partiality, you're showing favoritism, and, and this is wrong to do. And he says the reason it's wrong is because you are accepting people based upon an external appearance. And that's how the world treats people. But that's not how God treats people. He's saying you're showing partiality, and that word partiality actually means receiving the face. Receiving the face. What does that mean? It means receiving somebody on the face of it. Receiving someone by their appearance. So he's saying if you just treat people based on the world standards, which is certain people are desirable and attractive and winsome, certain people are you want to be around, and other certain people are looked down upon, frowned upon, not as desirable, not as attractive, things about them are bothersome or irritating. If you treat those people differently as Christians, then that is wrong. Because we are to treat people as God does, which is to extend love and to view and not to make assessments of people externally. So that theme of partiality that is in verses 1 through 7 is the same theme that we're studying today. So this is really part B of last week's message. This is the second half of it. Look at verse 9. If you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So he's saying there the exact same thing. It's continuing. He's been talking about partiality. He's still talking about this issue of partiality. And what he's saying in this passage is the gospel teaches and empowers us to obey the law of love. He's going to talk about this law of love. And he's going to teach that the mercy of God to us in the gospel teaches us and models for us how we're to treat others. And the gospel also enables us or empowers us by God's spirit to obey the law of love. The gospel teaches and empowers us to obey the law of love. Um, so back on this theme of partiality, let's look at today's passage today, verses 8 and 9. And the first thing he does in these verses, I don't know how to say it other than this, is he is making this point in these five verses, that partiality, showing favoritism, is a really, really big deal. To God, it is a huge deal. Kent Hughes wrote, partiality is not merely an excusable lack of courtesy, but a scandalous breach of God's love. Showing favoritism, it's not just a, uh, a excusable lack of courtesy. It's not just bad manners. It's not just sort of overlooking someone that I shouldn't have overlooked. It's not just, well, not really that big a deal. That's just how the world rolls. That's just how people act. It's not that at all, but it's actually a breach, an offensive breach of God's love. Now look what he says here in verses 8 and 9. He's going to tell us something positive about how to relate with folks, and he's going to say something negative if we don't relate that in that manner. Verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, 
you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. So, in other words, he's saying, don't show partiality, but do this. Obey the royal law, which is love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show partiality, that is receiving people by the face, literally is what that word means, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, is what he's talking about here. He calls it the royal law. Love your neighbor as yourself is a command we find in Leviticus 19. It's an Old Testament command that we are to love others as we love ourselves. And, of course, Jesus takes that in one place in Matthew 22 and says that that is supremely important, that we are to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. As a matter of fact, some people ask him, what's the most important command, Jesus? And he says, it is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And he says, the second one is just like it, is like it. That is to love your neighbor as yourself. So you are to have a love for God and a love for others. And all of the law and the prophets, all of the Old Testament summed up in that. I mean, if you took all the laws of the Old Testament, they would all come under those two headings, loving God and loving others. As a matter of fact, that's how the Ten Commandments are broken down. The first four commandments are about relating to God, having no other gods, not making an image, uh, not misusing his name, remembering the Sabbath day. So those are all commandments towards God. And the next six are all commandments towards others, honoring father and mother, not committing adultery, etc. So they are not murdering. So the other commandments are all how we relate to other people. And so the law, the Ten Commandments are broken into honoring God, loving God, the first four, and loving others, the second six. Don't steal because that's not loving your neighbor. Uh, That's how we relate to other people. So this is the royal law. Why is it a royal law in verse 8? Well, it's royal because royal has to do with things that are kingly. It is the law of the king. Jesus is the king, and Jesus has laid out this law for his kingdom that we are called to love others as we love ourselves. Now, this isn't as common of a teaching anymore, but you used to hear in popular evangelicalism, that really the starting place is that we must love ourselves. That As if Jesus was saying, you know, love your neighbor as you love yourself, but you can't really love others until you start to love yourself. So, like, the first step is self-love. And that's really not what he's saying. We don't really need a, a seminar on how to love ourselves. We've all mastered that. And uh, we have graduate degrees in self-love. As a matter of fact, no one needs instruction. A two-year-old doesn't need instruction. At a very young age, it's very obvious that self-love is pre- uh, prevalent whenever one is asked to share their toy Uh, the natural inclination of the heart, which is mine, shows that, okay, he's got self-love down. Let's move to the next topic. Uh, You have got that down at a young age. So he's not saying start to love yourself, but he's saying instead, love other people as you already love yourself. Given that you love yourself, why not treat others, we're called to treat others, in the same way we treat ourselves? We're all very aware of ourselves. We're aware of things that bother us, things that pain us things that hinder us. We're very good at self-awareness of our needs. We're good at caring for ourselves. I'm an expert at desiring my own comfort and trying to create a universe where that is the central theme of all other members of the planet, my comfort. So we are all good at pursuing our comfort, pursuing our benefit, thinking of ourselves. And what this royal loss is, is it says when you interact with other people, think of them the same way you think about yourself. Be aware of their benefit. 
Be aware of their good. Be aware of their comfort. Be aware of what serves them. Be aware of what profits them. Don't merely think about what benefits you. Think in the same, the same line of thinking that you think about yourself, which is naturally my benefit. Think about that for others, their benefit. Prefer others, the scripture says, elsewhere. So that's the calling, is to love others as we already love ourselves. And we're to do that to our neighbor. Our neighbor is certainly anyone. Jesus does define that a little more specifically and says the neighbor is the one in need. Anyone in need is our neighbor. And so whoever it is around us, whoever we're interacting with, rich or poor, the previous passage addressed caring for the poor, so that's certainly not far away from here. Caring for needy, reaching out to those who have uh, who have challenges and limitations and difficulties, that we are to love them as we love ourselves. And he's talking about the fact that favoritism breaks that law. Verse 9, if you show partiality, that is, you don't love everyone as you love yourself, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So he's saying if you... If you don't treat others the way you want to be treated, then in essence, you are showing favoritism. You are treating others the way you want to treat them. And you're treating some favorably and some less favorably. You're giving attention to some and ignoring others based on a standard that you set up. And that's transgressing. That's crossing the line. That's stepping over this royal law, which is to love others in the same way that we love ourselves. And if that's not strong enough, he's just going to ratchet it up with each verse we read. So he starts off talking about partiality. He gives this scenario in the church of favoring the rich and ignoring the poor. Then he comes in and says, boy, this is against Jesus's royal law, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. And then he makes this strong statement, partiality is actually committing sin. He's going to apply the S word here, sin. This is sin, he says. So he's making a strong case. But as he goes on, he's even going to make a stronger case. Look at verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has, been account- has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Now, this is hard for us to fathom. I mean, what he's actually saying here is he's actually saying, if you keep the whole law, but you fail at one point, you're accountable for all of it. He's saying if you break one law, you're guilty of all the law. That that there's not this category of really big sins that we break and really small sins that we break. He's, He's talking about favoritism, and he's... He's introducing this idea that it's not a smaller sin, that if you break one sin, for instance, showing favoritism, judging someone externally, positively or negatively, that if you do that, you've broken all the laws, what he's saying. And he gives these these examples here. See, earlier he's talked about speech, for instance. You know, he said, if you have pure religion, true religion, then you'll control your speech, he says in chapter 1. And what we tend to do is we tend to categorize big sins and little sins. And we think that if we're avoiding the big ones, we're okay. So what are the big speech sins? Well, probably in the Bible, cursing God or taking God, abusing God's name, using it inappropriately, that's a big one. 
Right? So if we call upon God to damn a person or a thing, to bring damnation to someone, and we're calling on God to bring that damnation, that is a misuse of His name and inappropriate. So that kind of language is clearly forbidden by scripture, Scripture, understandably so. So we could say, as long as I don't curse in that way, and as long as I don't use some of the words that are sort of on the, the moral no-no list, um, then I'm okay. And so we think big sins, but then the reality is we can really give ourselves a pass on things like grumbling. So I can grumble and complain, which is charging the sovereign God of the universe as, as being inadequate or lacking knowledge or doing me wrong in this scenario. So that one I'm okay with as long as I'm not damning people or something like that, which is clearly wrong. Or we think we, we is, that, you know, gossip's not such a big deal. So as long as I'm not using the really bad words, you know, I can talk about someone behind their back. I can spread things about people that I can evaluate and be critical in my judgment. See, really, this, the, the royal law would say that I should speak about others the same way that I would want them to speak about me. I would want people to speak encouraging words about me. I would want people to give me the benefit of the doubt instead of quickly judging and assessing my motive, for instance. So again, I can begin to think if I'm not cursing God, I'm not doing the really big sins, but I can be over here breaking the royal rule of law by quickly judging someone, by gossiping about someone, by being critical of others, by slandering, passing on things that are untrue about others, by using my tongues in this way. And so I think I'm not really doing the big thing, so I'm okay because I've got these levels of sin, some I'm comfortable with, some I'm really not comfortable with and want to avoid. And he uses other examples here. He talks about murder and adultery. And so the thought can be, well, uh, if I don't commit adultery, that is, uh, or, or fornication, I don't commit sexual sin, I don't have uh, a sexual relationship with someone I'm not married to. If I don't do that, I'm okay. That's what we can sort of think, is that if I avoid the big one, then, you know, these big sexual sins that I'm okay. And so then there are these lesser categories of sins that we can let ourselves get by with. And so lust of the heart and mental fantasies, we give ourselves much more of a pass on or looking at pornography on the internet, or something like that, reasoning that, well, these things aren't really harmful, like adultery, and so this is not really that big of a deal, perhaps, so that we rank the sins. Or we say, well, I haven't really committed murder. I've never really killed anybody. But Jesus says that if we hate our brother, there's, there's a murder, murderous nature in our heart. And so every time we nurse a grudge... Every time we rehearse something someone's done to us and, and sort of uh, chew on the unforgiveness that's resident in our heart, sometimes even enjoying it, sometimes even enjoying when something bad happens to someone who's done something bad to us, thinking they deserve that. And so we sort of relish something ill happening to someone else. And what are we doing at that, at that moment? Well, in our heart, we are, we are cherishing, you know, we're cherishing our hatred our bitterness, our unforgiveness, our anger towards someone else. So we say, I'm not really murdering, I'm just doing sort of these lesser things, but it's understandable. I mean, really, if you knew what they did to me, you wouldn't have any problem with this. You'd understand. And, And so 
we rank the sins. Now, obviously, 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 uh, to murder someone has much more damaging effects on them than to hate them in your heart. Understand, okay? We're not saying that the, the consequences of the action are exactly equal or that the, the, you know, the fruit of mental lust versus adultery in terms of hindering one's spouse, those are categorically different. I under, understand that. But the reality is that we still, even though the consequences are different, we still cannot sort of rank and have approved acceptable sins in our hearts and those that aren't acceptable. And that's what he's arguing for here, James, inspired by the Spirit. Is he's saying, don't view this favoritism thing as not really that big a deal. Because if you break one sin, if you break one law, you've broken them all. And then he starts talking about murder and adultery. I mean... James has no problem transitioning from talking about showing favoritism, liking certain people more and disliking others because that's just who we are. We don't like their race. We don't like their age. We don't like their gender. We don't like their dress. We don't like their style. We don't like their culture. And so we just dislike them, and that's not that big of a deal. No, he wants to talk about that in the same conversation as he's talking about murder and adultery. How can he do that? Because it's, God's not ranking Sins is unimportant. He's saying if you've, don't give yourself a pass. If you have broken one, you've broken the law. Selective obedience is disobedience to God. Selective obedience is disobedience. And, and not only when we give ourselves a pass on something like favoritism, discrimination, those type of things, not, not only are we still breaking the law and giving ourselves a pass, but we're doing something even worse. What we're doing is we're elevating ourselves like God to say that, you know, I sort of have the prerogative as sovereign of my own universe to just sort of rank the sins the way I want to rank them. So, you know, God forbids all this stuff, but I'm not really that opposed to these certain pet sins or ideas or speech or thoughts or actions. I'm kind of okay. I'm less concerned. I'm really going to avoid these. And maybe I would even say there's this category that I'm really concerned about and I'm trying to grow in. But there's this other category of things that just, I mean, hey, boys will be boys. Everybody's fallen. We're all a sinner. I heard it at church. So is it really that big of a deal? You know, we just give ourselves a pass. And the Bible says, no, if you break one, you have broken them all. We are to take sin seriously. And here, we're to take the sin of favoritism very seriously. If you break one, you break them all. Matir, in his commentary on James, which we have in the back there, he makes this point. He says that oftentimes we view sin as a big pile of rocks. And each rock is like a different sin. Each rock is something the scripture forbids. We, we view the law that way. We review God's law that way. And so there's things we're not supposed to do here. And so, you know, we see a big pile of rocks and we say, well, I'm going to do that. That's forbidden. And I'm going to do that. And that's forbidden. I'm going to do that. And we kind of take some rocks away. We sin. We did some things that we weren't supposed to do. But we can still look over and say, there's a pretty big pile of rocks there, like stuff I'm not doing. Or stuff that God wants me to do that I am doing. So we kind of go over there and say, hey, I'm not that bad. I mean, sure, I've got these things I'm not supposed to be doing, but I didn't kill anybody. That's still in the pile. I didn't commit adultery. That's still in the pile. I'm not stealing people's stuff. That's still in the pile. I'm not cursing God. That's still in the pile. So we can look over there and say, we can kind of evaluate as if we've pulled a few things off and we're sort of okay. The problem is the verse doesn't say that the laws are all separated. You can do some and not do some. It says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. 
And, and he says the illustration is not a pile of rocks that we pull off. The illustration is that the law is like a sheet of glass. And that if you take a brick and you haul it into the sheet of glass, that the whole glass shatters. The whole thing splinters. Have you ever seen splintered, web-like glass? That's what happens when we sin against God's law. Is that It's like they're all broken. I mean, 20-some-odd years ago, my wife and I were moving from Texas to California, and we had been married three months. It was like Beverly Hillbillies going out to California. Didn't, you know, all, our position, all our possessions fit in a box, it seemed like. I think we had a small U-Haul. But, so we're, we're pulling it out, and it's going through West Texas, and the sun's going down. It's a little hard to see, but I saw something, and it was a deer on my windshield, and his face was like right there, and then he fell off. I didn't even know what happened, but this deer leapt out of a ditch, landed on our, my truck, and, and just flew, flew away. And what I noticed about that, I guess it was like, shit, flew away. Well, with the force of me driving 70 miles an hour, he flew away, I suppose. Um, but what I noticed about that glass was that it wasn't as if there was like this one spot where his face hit that, uh, I'm, I'm so kind of sad, isn't it? So I'm sorry, but his, his face hit, it was, it was his fault, I wasn't aiming for him, but uh, <laughs> it wasn't like that one part broke. All of the entire glass shattered into these like web-like fractures. So bad that to drive my truck, I have this vivid memory. We had to get to the next town. I had to drive with my face out of the window. Now we really look like the Beverly Hillbillies. These Yahoo Texans driving through to California with just a guy sticking his head out the window. And then it got worse when we got there. And in the town, they said, we can't get a windshield for your car for three weeks. Like, I don't know, where they had to drive to get one or something. So what they did was the body shot took plexiglass, put it in my windshield, and duct taped it in and said, you can drive to California. And I did. I drove with duct tape. So that if Bambi jumps again, then he's not in the ditch, but he's riding shotgun with me because <laughs> he's coming right straight through that. And, but I just, for whatever reason, I didn't think, well, that's a bad idea. Duct tape, that's probably not real safe. But I wanted to get to California, and I was young and dumb. So I went. But what I, what I learned was that that kind of shattering and that kind of splintering is not sort of parsed out and sectioned out. That's how sin works against God's law. It shatters. It breaks. It, it, it breaks it all. It's not the pile of rocks. It's the shattered glass. If I break one, I have broken them all. How can this be? Well, here's how this can be. Because it's not just a list of random rules that God has come up with. Sin is. It's not. It's an offense and affront against God personally. Look at verse 11. Verse 11. For he who said, do not commit adultery. Also, he said, do not murder. What's being communicated there is that the law that God gives is a reflection of him personally. Of his character. The law represents the character of God. It's not a list, a random list of house rules. It's not just a list of things to stay, to say stay, to stay safe or to have a better life. The law reflects the very character of God. So it is as if we're taking that brick and throwing it at him, his standard. His law. We're resisting Him. We're not just resisting commandment number six at that given moment. We are resisting God Almighty. 
For he who said, see, the law reflects God. The law says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Why? Because God is love. Because God is love. God loves his neighbor. The proof of that is Christmas. Jesus makes himself our neighbor. God comes in the flesh to love us, to communicate the love of God for us, to die in our place. The ultimate love of neighbor is Jesus coming to our earth, living a flawless life, and dying as an innocent in our place. That is love of neighbor. He was not thinking of himself. He was thinking of us. I mean, he's thinking of glorifying the Father, to be sure. But there is this sense that he is giving himself sacrificially, lovingly, thinking of neighbor in his death and resurrection. Why does the Scripture say you shall not murder? Because God is life. God is the giver of life. God is the one who spoke and the entire universe came into existence. God is ultimate life. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. There is no life found outside of him. Physically, you are alive today because God wills it so. He could stop your heart beating instantaneously and one day will. God is life and he is spiritual life to us as well. We're out, brought out of darkness into light. We're brought from spiritual death to spiritual life when we trust Christ as our Savior. And so there is life. He, he says, do not commit adultery because God is faithful. Do not be unfaithful. Because God, why? God is completely faithful. God is always trustworthy. So the law reflects who God is. And so with favoritism, that is not how God acts. God does not assess people on the outside and say, well, I just like these people because there's some kind of preference that I have and I dislike these people. So we're not supposed to act that way. We're not supposed to judge and assess. We're to relate to everyone as neighbor, loving them as we love ourselves. Why? Because it's a rule in the book. It is, and that would be enough, but because it is a reflection of the character of God. And so we are a gospel community called to reflect the character of God. And when in the church people are discriminated against, people are treated differently because of their personality, because of their limitations, because of their age, their race, because of certain things about them that make them less desirable, because of their background, their socioeconomic status, whatever the preferences may be, when the church treats one another like that, then the message of God's love and the reflection of the gospel through changed lives is silenced. It's muted. It disappears. That's why this is so important. Because we are to be a testimony, an example of the gospel. And the church is to be the place where there is unity. Where people that would be outcast in the culture are welcomed in. Where people that would be slighted and looked down upon are treated fairly and equally and like anyone else. The gospel is to have that effect on us. And that's why this type of sin, like favoritism, discrimination, partiality, that's why it's elevated. That's why he's saying, don't give yourself a pass on favoritism. It's a brick in your hand, ready to be thrown and shattering the glass of God's law. And he wants to talk about it with murder, and he wants to talk about it with adultery. Because of the seriousness of this issue. And if that's not enough, if it's not enough to say 
it breaks the royal law of loving others, if it's not enough to say it's a sin, if it's not enough to say if you sin in this area, you've broken all the law, and let's go ahead and mention it along with adultery and murder, if it's not enough to do that, then what he does next ratchets it up even higher. I mean, what's higher than that? Well, look at verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Those who are to be judged. He then breaks in the topic of coming judgment. Coming judgment. I'm not making this stuff up. This is what he's saying. I'm just trying to report, report the news here from God. He's saying that act in a way that lives with the awareness that you will give an account for your words, so speak, and your actions, so act. He gives this picture, don't show favoritism because one day you will be judged under the law of liberty. Now that serves as a sobering motivation. He's giving multiple motivations here. Love because of how God has loved you. Don't act this way because it doesn't reflect the character of God. Don't sin, but honor God with your actions. And now he's motivating with this idea that we will one day give an account. Kent Hughes in his commentary on this book, book of James, in this passage in particular, relays this story that I just found most fascinating. And it's a story about the reality that a future coming judgment is meant to affect how we treat others today, and especially with the attitude of favoritism. And he tells the story of Amy Carmichael. She was a a missionary to India, and he tells the story of her when she was a little girl, and something happened to her. She wasn't a missionary then. She lived uh, in Belfast. And something happened to her that changed her life and her view of people. She had an event with God as a little kid. Here's what happened. She was evidently, from what I read, I don't know much about her, but this one account I read, she was evidently raised in perhaps a a wealthy environment, uh, at least a uh, perhaps a more upper middle class type environment. And she said she was walking home from church one day. She was a little girl, and they were walking home from church. And the reason I'm kind of surmising that is because it said she saw something that they never saw where they lived. They saw a poor lady, an older lady, and she was carrying a large bundle. On the Lord's Day, Sunday, she was carrying this large bundle, and they were all coming home from church. And uh, so she said what she did was she and her brothers went over to help this elderly lady. And she was evidently very poor, unattractive. Um, I lived in Southern California a number of years, and when I lived in L.A., there was a a, a very ungracious name for people like this. They would call them bag ladies, kind of like a homeless, older, needy woman. And that's what she was. She was like a bag lady carrying this burden. And they went over and they took whatever she was carrying. They took this burden and began to carry it for her. And she said that she immediately realized that the sophisticated, well-to-do, together people that were all around her were looking. And she became embarrassed. It was embarrassing that she was touching, handling, helping with this sort of despised lady that no one else was helping. And uh, she said it was, she was aware of that and self-aware and concerned about what do I look like identifying with this poor person getting dirty and while everyone else, it was a rainy day, while everyone else was in their Sunday best, sophisticated, walking down the street home. And she said she came near this 
ornate Victorian fountain in the street. And as she walked by the fountain, she heard something. And it was the scripture. She heard the scripture coming to her. And as she looked around, and there was no one there. It was God speaking to her. She didn't say it was audible voice like my voice to you right now. It may have just been internally. But she felt like God was speaking to her. 1 Corinthians 3. And this is what she heard. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. She she had this impression. She must have obviously known that scripture. And God brought that to mind. God spoke to her in that moment. And she had this impression that one day, all of my works will be evaluated before God. And that this is the kind of thing that will be pleasing, though may be not pleasing to others, the sophisticated. This will be pleasing to God. And Hughes writes, the children plodded on with the bundle of feathers, but something had happened to the girl which changed forever life's values. She changed her life in her view that she ultimately gave her life to caring for needy people. Why? Because she was motivated by an event where God spoke to her and said, this is not all there is. This is passing by very quickly. And one day we stand before God and give an account for our lives, even as Christians. Now, we won't be sentenced to hell for our lives as Christians because of Christ amazing grace and love to us, but, but there's nonetheless an assessing of our life of what is pleasing to the Lord and what was not. And she thought about that. She wanted to be one who wouldn't show favoritism, but would give her life to loving neighbor as she loved herself. Speak and act, he says, as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Why is it called the law of liberty? Liberty means freedom. It's the law of freedom. Why is God's word, the scripture, the law of freedom for us? Well, here's the good news for us as Christians. None of us can live up to God's law, but God's word captures our heart. When we become a Christian, chapter 1, verse 18 of James says that we are brought forth by the word. We hear the good news that Jesus died for sinners. That word comes to us. We believe it. That word is implanted in us. Chapter 1, verse 21, James says that we are to receive that implanted word, that we are to continue to hear the word and continue to act upon the word. And as we do that, as we continue to read and understand and hear God's word and to apply it, that we are incrementally changed. Little by little, God changes us. That this law, love your neighbor as you love yourself, it becomes a law of freedom because we are freed and enabled to obey that law in an increasing way once we're Christians. It's not a law of bondage that we're in slavery. We're free, and we're free to actually obey God's law. He, He enables us to walk out His truth. He enables us into an increasing way, please Him and glorify Him and honor Him with our lives. Before, we never could have done that. But once the Spirit of God comes in us and lives in us, He changes us, and now we are free in a way that we weren't before. We're not under the bondage of sin which dominates our lives, but the bondage of sin has been broken over our lives because of Jesus Christ, and we are increasingly empowered 
to grow in holiness and to obey him. It is a law of freedom. He changes our hearts and empowers us to obey. The truly converted person will grow in obedience and will desire, that's the important thing as well, will desire to obey God. The truly converted person will want to love neighbor as he loves himself for the purpose of honoring the Lord and pleasing the Lord, to be a hearer and a doer of the word. Verse 13, he says, for judgment is without mercy. This is the last verse. Judgment's without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The one who has been converted by Jesus Christ, the one who sees the need for their sin, of their sin, and turns to Jesus Christ asking for forgiveness of sins, that person who has been converted has their sins forgiven and will never be touched by the judgment of God eternally. That is good news. But the one who hasn't, they will be judged exactly by their works. There will be no mercy shown to them. This is what this means. And please hear me, if you are here today and you are not a Christian, this is a sound warning. You may be a church member. You may be religious. He's addressed that in the previous chapter. You may have attended church for quite a while. You may, people may think you're a Christian in this room. But if you've never turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus Christ, here is the sober reality that awaits you. The sober reality is you may not have committed murder. Hope you haven't. You may not have committed adultery, but you have surely broken the law. He says by showing favoritism, you've broken the law. And if you've broken one, you've shattered them all. And so you are deserving of God's judgment for your sins. You are deserving of his judgment for eternity in hell. And that is terrible news. It is the stark reality we all face, but it is terrible, terrible a reality that faces every one of us that don't know the Lord. If we don't know the Lord, then we are not going to be changed by him so that we extend mercy to others. And so no mercy is extended to us. We are shown no mercy, the scripture says. You won't be treated unfairly. You'll be treated justly. You'll stand before God and give an account of your life and realize that your many sins have been an affront towards God. You've sinned against God and you will be condemned for them. Forever, it will be just, it will be equitable, it will be fair, it will be righteous. But you do not have to face that judgment. You do not have to endure condemnation. You do not have to endure judgment for your sins. This is the good news of this passage. He says that mercy triumphs over judgment. That ultimately, mercy wins for the Christian. Mercy is the final word for the believer in Jesus Christ. Now, does that mean that like God's character is fighting against himself? Like he's merciful, but he's also just, and he's going to fight against it mercy ones? No, no, that's not how it works. God is completely holy. God is completely gracious. God is completely merciful. God is completely righteous. God forgives, and God holds people responsible for their sins. There's not one or the other. The question is, who pays the price? See, when he says mercy triumphs over judgment, if you're a Christian here today, your sins are judged. It's just you're not paying the judgment. Your sins have been punished. They've been punished on Jesus Christ. This is the good news. The reason mercy has the last word is because if you're a Christian, Jesus has died in your place 
for your sins. That the Bible says that when he is on the cross, he endured the wrath of the Father. God poured out his judgment upon Jesus Christ for our sins. It should be us enduring the penalty, but Jesus endured in our place. So is there condemnation for your sins as a Christian? Yes, Jesus took the condemnation for you. Jesus paid the penalty, and so that you taste mercy instead of judgment. As a Christian, God has shown mercy to us. He punished Jesus and welcomes us. The Scripture says we have not been treated as our sins deserve. And that's because Jesus was treated as our sins deserve. This is the greatest news imaginable. Because what James is saying is everyone in this room is way worse than they think. Way worse than they think. He's saying, hey, you want to say about murder and adultery? I'm going to tell you this. If you've shown favoritism one time, you've taken a brick and you've thrown it and you've shattered the law of God in defiance of God. That's way worse than you thought. And you're going to pay judgment, endure judgment for your sins. But, he says, mercy has the last word. You can receive forgiveness. You can turn to Christ and believe in Jesus as the one who takes the condemnation, who takes the wrath in your place. You can have all your sins forgiven. And it's like standing before God. It's like we never broke the law. For the Christian, Jesus obeys in our place. This is astounding. Jesus is the substitute. So when God looks at our life and he looks at our obedience to the law, it's like that sheet of glass was never touched. Because Jesus obeyed every law. And if you've trusted him as your savior, then his obedience is given to you. The shattered glass is put back together and it's clear and it's clean and it's as if your life has been flawless because his obedience counts for us. And every one of our sins, every brick that was thrown at the glass, he stood as an intermediary and endured and absorbed those bricks, as it were, so that the glass is intact. Your sin is forgiven. Mercy triumphs over. Mercy wins for the Christian. Mercy has the final say. And that is to affect us. We don't take advantage of that and say, hey, mercy wins. I'm going to do whatever I want. No, mercy softens our heart so that we want to love our neighbor as ourselves. So that we want our speech as Christians, we want to speak about others the way we want them to speak about us. We want to love others the way we want them to love us. We don't want to show partiality because we've received mercy and we want to treat others without favoritism or discrimination the way we want to be treated. And there's power. Mercy gives us power by the power of the gospel and the power of his word to change. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If you're not a Christian and you resist and reject that gift from Jesus Christ, then you will endure judgment. You can trust Christ. You can turn from your sin and follow Christ, receive Him as Lord of your life, and He will pay your price and you receive mercy. Or you can resist Him, reject Him, live as your own God, and you will stand before God and you will receive justice without mercy. You may be a young person here. You, again, you may have been around for a long time. You may be an older person. You may be a grandparent here today. And I invite you to trust Jesus Christ. And if you are a Christian, this applies to us as well. We are to treat others based on the mercy we've received with our speech, with our thoughts, with our actions. We're not just trying to be a community here. So like we're an alternative 
countercultural movement or some kind of stuff like that. I mean, communism would say that. But we're not trying to just be an alternative reality as a church. We're trying to be those who've been touched by mercy and been forgiven much, so we extend forgiveness to others. We've been granted a new life, and so that mercy causes us to love others, the needy, the outsider, the outcast, and the rich. Also to love without distinction because of the great mercy that's been extended to us. To express forgiveness rather than judgment to others because that's what we've tasted. Christ paid our judgment. Christ bore the wrath for us. Christ took it for us, as it were. And so we love others and bear up with others and forbear with others and are patient with others. Forgive others rather than judging, being critical and hateful. It's good news. It's really, really good news. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And you know, I don't know any way to close this meeting any more meaningful, I trust, than to receive communion. Because the bread and the cup shout to us, mercy triumphs over judgment. The cup represents the blood of Jesus shed for us so that we don't pay for our sins, but he did. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The bread represents his body broken so that we might be reconciled to God and reconciled to one another. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If you're a Christian, if you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, then please partake of this with us today. If you're not a Christian, then it would be best just to, to pass on this part because what this is is really identifying. We're really saying Jesus Christ is my Savior. And so that would just sort of be meaningless for you if, if you haven't. Uh, you can just sing and stand there quietly. Uh, we certainly don't want that to be an awkward moment for you or something like that. Uh, if you have kids with you, if they're Christians, please welcome them to participate. And if they're not, uh, they should just wait uh, as well. So we're going to sing a song as the elements come by. Why don't you receive? hold on to this? And then we're going to take the bread and the cup together in a moment to celebrate the mercy of God. Jesus has forgiven us, and we've experienced great, great grace. So we'll receive that together in just a moment. God, we thank you for your body broken for us, for we would surely be those that discriminated and were angry and bitter and separated from everybody if it weren't for your grace, which has changed us. Thank you that your body was broken, that we might be reconciled to you, and reconciled to one another. Thank you that your body is one and that, uh, that as it was torn, we are now joined in unity as a body of Christ together. So we pray, Lord, that you would enable us to live this reality out, one, because you were broken. And we thank you for your blood shed that we might have forgiveness of our sins. God, we could never be good enough. Uh, we could never be perfect. We're sin- sinners, and we acknowledge that this morning. But we thank you that though we deserve judgment, mercy triumphs over judgment. And that you gave your very life that we might be forgiven and declared righteous before God. So Lord, this is so sweet to us today. That we're not getting what we deserve, but we're getting mercy. Thank you, Lord, for your love, your tender care. Thank you for your your love for us in this very tangible, practical, this extreme, this ultimate demonstration of love your death, and your resurrection. So we receive this today, proclaiming your death and your resurrection and thanking you that we're part of your family and that we're new and our sins are forgiven. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.